Hi everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources, so that no matter where you are in your journey, you have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who have been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and those lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Hello, everybody from sunny South Florida. This is Debbie, and I'm so excited to be here. I was talking to my guest a little bit ago and just told her I was going to go in one direction, and then I listened to a YouTube video of her as I was doing my research, and I was like, I'm going in a different direction, and I got ignited uh, this morning, and my, you know, that light in me, and I wrote to Dr. Tim, I'm like, I'm so gunned up about this topic, because it looked like we were going to be talking about doctors and lawyers, and what happens between them, and, you know, I think about medical scams, and the, the bump and run, and the chiropractors, and that kind of stuff, and then I was like, well, that might have happened in a little bit, but there is a whole different discussion going on here about advocacy and speaking up, standing up and speaking up. So I'd like to welcome my guest from upstate, um, where is she in New York? Tab Covety. Tab, are you there? I am. Hello. How are you today, Debbie? I'm perfect. Thank you so much for being here. So where are you located right now? I am located uh, about an hour and a half north of New York City along the Hudson River. So along the Hudson River, north of the city. Yeah, do city. you know the uh, Poughkeepsie area? Okay, uh, yeah. where it's cold. Well, we're, we're having 60-degree weather, so it's very <laughs> much spring-like here. <laughs> well, your idea of spring and mine are completely different now. Um, it's funny, I used, to, I used to live in Vermont, and I used to I think, oh, the crocuses are going to come out, the tulips are going to come out. And they do, and then it snows on them. And mm -hmm. I'm really glad I'm in South Florida. But I'm so glad that you're here. I have not met you in person. I'll put that right out there to everybody. But I was introduced to you through a friend, another friend of mine at Women's Prosperity Network, Peggy Hansen. And Peggy and I, Peggy helped me with my Audible book of The Woman Behind the Smile. Just a pitch for that. It's a great version of The Woman Behind the Smile. And Peg said, Deb, you've got to hear Tab's story. Uh, she said, it's something that has to be told. And I was like, great. So you and I talked, I think, back in November and didn't reconnect until just recently when I said, oh, my gosh, she's going to be on my show soon. And since I talked to you, my dad went into the hospital at Christmas. And when I was watching your video this morning, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're going there. We're going to talk about what happens in the hospital or after the hospital. And so, Tab, I want you to jump right into your story. Let my audience know what happened to you, and we're going to go. We're going to go from there. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, having me on your show today. I had a very simple 
fall on, on ice and I happen to fracture uh, my L5. And that led me on this incredible journey of all the worst case scenarios that could have possibly happened in patient care and uh, in medicine. That clean fracture ended up not healing and I required surgery. And the medical practice that I went to have that surgery from, which would, should have been a very simple procedure, should have been up having normal life uh, relatively quickly, um, ended up being four surgeries in less than six months. Those surgeries involved entry from both the front and the back of me. Uh, ports were broken on, on my spine. My three-millimeter fracture somehow gets moved to 7.9 millimeters. I get two screws put in through the front of me on the wrong angle. Um, I have um, incisions that won't heal. Um, they put me on incredible amounts of antibiotics, thinking that I had uh, some type of super infection, yet I had no high uh, white blood cell count. Um, I was given hardware that had uh, nickel in it, which was a known allergy to me, um, that they were not checking prior to the surgeries. I had healthy bone removed from my body um, and was literally left in a state after the fourth surgery in six months in a position where I would not only require a reconstructive surgery, but I was an imminent risk for inward spinal collapse. It would take me years to find a doctor that would even agree to have surgery on me. And this okay. is where my journey is. No, no, no. That's when your journey into advocacy went. But going back to the beginning, how did you get the first doctor? Because you, you mentioned somewhere in the story to me, too, that there was an attorney involved in here. So what's Correct. the attorney-doctor relationship? Let's hit that right off the bat. Sure. So there's a, a, little, a little known thing that um, people know, but they don't have a, a real understanding about, and that's personal injury. I happened to fall on a, a, at a building, um, and I was advised to get an attorney to have all of my medical bills paid, and that's what I did. There's a whole side to personal injury law that the public is really not aware of, and that, that's the aspect that um, attorneys are not always doing the best things for their clients. Um, in order to receive that payout, that they're, they have a, an interest in mitigating a higher payout, and that may involve sending you to a doctor whom they know is not as skilled or qualified as another doctor and whom would be more willing to play ball with the language that they want for a higher payout, and what happens out of that is you are not getting the best care that you could possibly get, or you are being sent to a subpar doctor or a doctor that would be considered running a mill in which you would be guaranteed to have the maximum amount of health care needed to manipulate that payout in that lawsuit. And going into it, we're not thinking about that, are we? You're thinking that no the doctor knows is there that. for your good. Exactly. Yeah, you think you get, it's put across to you like you're getting a referral that, hey, you know, on the inside, I know that that doctor doesn't have 
as good of hands as this doctor. Don't go to that doctor to have surgery. Go to this doctor to have surgery. So it's put together in a very finesse manner that you're being given this special referral that you believe that you're being guided away from somebody who might harm you. And like a lamb being led into slaughter, you are directed to the exact individual who's going to, you know, bring harm and chaos to your life. Because you trust. You trust the attorney. You trust the doctors that he's referred you to. It comes down to trust, which, which we, all, we all do. I mean, yes. and, then, and then I love it. Uh, there's, we, we, we were talking about the, what did I write this morning? It was about the, uh, the fear of the white coat, basically, you know, or the, the trust in the white coat. And I, I asked that question to someone this morning. I said, when you walk into a doctor's office to have a shot, to have, you know, something taken off, uh, and you go to a dermatologist and they're going to freeze something off, or you're going in for major surgery, and the doctor walks in, what's the feeling that you have when the white coat walks in? How do you that feel? That feeling, again, it's, a, it's an absolute trust. You believe absolutely everything they say, and you don't question it. And we're not bashing doctors here. I've got doctors in my family. I love my doctors. But we don't have the doctors. Again, I'm not bashing doctors, but what comes to mind here, my dad's 91. My dad is a retired dentist. His best friend was a physician. 91 years old. He's still working up in Vermont. He's doing telehealth now. But he was the local doctor. He was the guy we all went to as kids. And my dad still calls him. Dad can see a doctor at Cleveland Clinic, but he'll still, still call Dr. Hugh and say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? We don't have those family physicians like we used to anymore. No, we right? don't. A lot has changed. A lot has changed in medicine as they are becoming corporate entities. And corporations mm -hmm. run differently than family doctors or medical practices. They have an entirely different set of rules and they go off of the basis of sales. Sales is, is king in, in a corporate entity. And that we, is starting to affect patients in a huge way. You see that on television shows. We, we watch The Resident and it's probably not all true, but there is an element of it where it, the hospitals are run by big corporations. The CEOs are typically bottom line guys and the doctors want to provide the best care they can. They really do. They, they take, for the most part, they take that oath and they really have the, the patient's interest in mind. But they're caught in the middle, right? They're caught in, like, I think you said somewhere that they've got sales quotas, basically. Can you explain that? They do. Um, this is another thing that I think the public is not very much aware of. And I've had a lot of doctors come forward and speak to me with regard to this, um, because of my story and my desire to push it forward and mitigate changes, doctors are afraid to come forward and, and talk more about this. They're looking for people to come forward and help them bring this to light so they could go back to practicing medicine at the level that they want. So when they have these contracts, their, their employment contracts with these corporate entities, these contracts state specific things. And that could be um, something as simple, and I'm going to use this purely as an example. Um, there's, there's no basis to, to say this is the only example, but this, this is the example I'm going to use. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the flu shot, for example. So if a practice, if a doctor gets 60% of his patients to get that flu shot, he gets a bonus. And that bonus could be 
$40,000 as an example. And if his, if his patients don't meet that bonus, he could actually be sales penalized. And so these bonuses are set up by categories or procedures. And so when they reach those categories or uh, procedures, their sales quota levels, they get bonuses out of it. So a lot of these procedures that you could be recommended or asked to get that seem very benign are huge money-making aspects for the medical practice that don't get flagged by health insurance companies. So they're, they're looking for things, ultimately, that they could get insurance companies to pay that they don't question, that they could have a high percentage of their patients having those procedures without ever getting flagged for it. And that's, I think, a key difference in how a medical practice starts to not run in the best interest of their patients versus having the best interest for those patients and recommending what's needed for that patient. And it will never come out if the patients don't speak up. Because I'm thinking back to a different industry. When I was in banking, Many of the customer service reps were in, strongly encouraged to get people to get debit cards, credit cards, extra bank accounts, all these different things because these service reps had sales goals. And sometimes they were so ridiculously high that they could never, ever get uh, the, the solutions, as they called them, uh, from the clients unless they started calling out and getting outside. Like I would get calls when I left the bank, get calls from my old friends and say, hey, could you open up another checking account for the, one of the kids? Could you do this? I need one or two extra points. So I get my bonus. It's bonus driven. It's not solutions and customer driven. Same idea here. Yeah. Get this it procedure. Is. It'll be under the radar. And that's why it's really important after you've been to the doctor's office to check and see what they really charged you for. That's, I think That's part of it. That's yeah. Right. Sorry. No, no, no. I think a couple of years ago, I was looking at a dermatology bill, thinking, I didn't have that done. I wonder if that. I wonder if my husband had that done, and they just put it on my account. I didn't pursue it. The thought was there, and how often does that happen? Every what? single day. Every day. So, in your particular case, so you had a you had an attorney, personal injury attorney, sent you to a doctor that. Or Correct. you had a doctor and then the personal injury attorney sent you to a different doctor? How did that happen? Okay, so how did that happen? I was seeing another surgeon. I had scheduled the surgery with that surgeon. And it was after I had been seeing that surgeon for a few months, I had that scheduled surgery set up that I get a phone call that says I cannot see that surgeon, that... Um, he had bad hands, that he was lying to me about my recovery rate, um, personally cited his own back surgery and told me that I did not want to end up like him. It was a very, very fear-based conversation mm. that made me concerned that if I went into that surgery, I was not going to come out okay. And, you know, going back to normal life was my absolute priority and as quickly as possible. So I listened to what he said. And mm -hmm. I said, well, he must know, you know, he, he's got some inside knowledge of who's good or who's not good based on his profession. And I took his advice and I went to the uh, medical practice that he recommended. 
So what has happened to that medical practice since your story? Oh, well, when I found out quite by accident what that medical practice was doing, I started making complaints. I started making complaints to the district attorney's office, to every state regulatory board designed to handle those matters. Um, and I had lengthy conversations with um, the district attorney's office. That medical practice was ultimately shut down. Um, they were allowed to leave the state without any prosecution, um, pretty much on the basis of their professional status. They did not want to mitigate any distrust in a public, in a medical entity. And they allowed those doctors to go off to other states um, where their pattern of harm has continued. That's a scary thought. It's a very scary thought. Okay, so that event, uh, you can't do anything about those doctors, but now you've turned this into your mission to spread the word, to be a patient advocate. Because I'm thinking of, you know, how, how medicine has changed over the years and now we've got, you know, different healthcare things and managed care and I, I really like the way that you put it once when I heard managed care, the bottom line is money for the institution, not necessarily the best care for the patient, right? Exactly. Yes, it's and I'll like, give an example of that. Go ahead. In, in, and I'm going to use this, this example because I ended up traveling to Europe to get assistance from them to get the surgery that ultimately assisted me with being able to walk and have a more normal life. In Europe, in, in socialized medicine, the principle behind medicine for them is ultimately to get an individual back to their health so that they could be a productive member of society and continue to contribute within the society. In the United States, we have a deep flaw in our medical system that we really need to address and work on and fix, and that's we stopped going from medical care that returns us to a normal life and went to a state of managed care. And in managed care, all that is about is managing your symptoms. It's not about finding the root cause and helping you to lead a normal, healthy life again. It's about managing those symptoms and not really looking for the cause, but mitigating those symptoms for the rest of your life and kind of giving you relief from those symptoms. I don't really consider that to be medicine. I think that's almost a form of cruelty that most people would prefer to be a normal, productive member of society. And if given the proper choices about what they could do to take care of their condition more, if they even knew or fully understood their condition better, they would be more apt to make choices, conscious choices, to lead a more healthy and productive life. And I think that we mislead the public when we don't give them the options that they could actually change or slow down or even cure themselves in certain cases with certain conditions based on making proper changes, whether it's to their diet, to their lifestyle, uh, or you know, any combination of, of factors, but giving people those choices. And I think that we're doing a huge disservice to our population when we're not giving them those choices. We're not allowing them to make those choices. We just say, if this is your symptom, I'm going to give you this drug, and this prescription is going to, to handle those symptoms. 
and now this person has these symptoms, but they've never they've never gotten to what the root cause of those symptoms are, and now they don't even have the ability to do something about it. So those symptoms build, which will add other symptoms, which will hire another drug, and then they have a lifetime that slowly unfolds into building a pattern of continued care going back and forth to doctors and medical institutions, which in turn create sales quotas, going back to our initial conversation, that's a lifetime and amount that that patient is worth. And those numbers are actually being calculated. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, and I, part of my mind is playing devil's advocate here because you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. My husband had diabetes. He knew everything that he should be doing to take care of that or to prevent that with exercise and diet and all that. And, and Lou even had a, a lap band surgery and got to the point where he hated that feeling that he couldn't eat a whole steak. He told him to reverse it and he put the weight back on and died of a heart attack. So no matter how much education and knowledge he had about certain things, he chose not to live the life that would give it to him, even though he wanted to. Uh, but I, I couldn't say that he wanted to because he, he didn't. There's a lot of information out there, but I agree with you that once you get into the system, it just perpetuates. It keeps going on and on and on, and then, and then you're locked in. And I tease my doctor. When I go once a year and he does all my stuff, I said, Doc, if you had more patients like me, you'd be out of business because I, I do take care of myself as best I can. Mm-hmm. And I, I question him saying, well, next year you might have to be on a cholesterol. I'm like, but it's not, it's not anything I eat. It might be genetic. He said, yeah, but just a little. I said, well, let me see what I can do over the year to, with my diet and everything else to prevent it or vitamin supplements or something like that. I'm big on vitamin supplements. But I agree with you that, you know, once you get into the, into the system, it is about money. So when you, boy, my brain is just spinning on this one because as an advocate, what did you have to do? And I know it was a long, long process for you when you got out of these surgeries. What have you had to do to, um, to protect yourself now? And going forward, what can we do to be our own advocate in this, in this system? Because it is a system. It's an institutional system. Well, the, the first thing that I like to tell people is I love doctors. And, and they are wonderful assets to our society. At the same hand, I want people to to understand that doctors are human. They're not mythical godlike creatures. When we go to them, they are just as human as we are. They can miss something. They could be distracted by something else. They they have feelings and opinions and sometimes they overlap into their their professional world. So when you go to your doctor, you have to view them as an equal. And you have to be able to ask them questions and not afraid to ask them questions. And ask them if, if that is what they personally feel or if that is what they professionally feel. And it's, it's through the course of asking those questions that I think that you get to make better educated decisions about your own health care. Right. And when I'm there, it's, it's interesting because I always turn it around and I do this with sales of any kind. I'm like, if I were your mother, would you suggest I do X, Y, Z? Personalize it for them. I'm not just a patient anymore. What if I was your mom? Would you want me to have mm-hmm. that procedure? 
because you know we we tease these days. You walk in and and I'm in my early 60s, <clears throat> a lot of these doctors, which are fantastic doctors, are in their early 30s, early 40s. They look like kids. So that's why I turned it around to say, if I was your mom, uh, it did, puts a different perspective on it. But why are we so afraid to ask questions? We can Google up, up a storm, and I'm not sure they like that. But I think, no, not always, not always. But I think there's two factors to that. We are... We are raised to respect our, our professionals. We have always been raised to, to trust the doctors. And, and I think that there is also a lot of um, psychological studies for psychological sales marketing to always trust your doctor. So I think we have two things against this. We're raised by our parents to always trust the doctor who are raised in a generation that's different than today's generation. And then you have a lot of that you know, sales psychology going on in, in marketing that we see everything everywhere with, with trust the doctor, trust the doctor. Um, so we don't, we're not inherently taught to question the process. We're taught to just kind of go along with the process and, and believe everything they say. And I, I think that that's doing us a disservice. Um, I think there's a big difference between having respect for your doctor and then still also being able to ask questions about your medical care or what's best for you or, you know, be able to say, is, is your opinion on this the best opinion for my life or is this your opinion based on a general population? And, and people are afraid to ask that, that question. They, they feel that if they question their doctor in any way that they're going to make their doctor mad at them or that they're not going to get better quality care. And I think the opposite would happen. I think mm -hmm. doctors would be so relieved based on my conversations with them if people came to the table more willing to constructively work with them on, on their best care. I think it actually makes it easier for them. And I'll get into that a little bit later when we, we talk about medical advocacy, a little bit more things that people can do. Well, I, I am now thinking about one of my friends who um, had been a smoker for many years, and she's in her mid-50s. She was not, she had a cough, and of course, during this period of time with COVID and everything, people are freaking out that she's got this cough. So she went into the doctor to get tested, and they said, well, let's just look a little bit further into this cough. And it turned out that she had a little something on her x-ray, on her lung. So put together a you know, bump or lump on your x-ray and your lungs, you've been smoking for four, 35 years. We need to get you to a pulmonologist and, a, you know, go from there. So she goes to a pulmonologist. They say, we think you have a cancer lump there. And they said, you know, she said, well, do I need a biopsy? And, this, and will it hurt? Well, in her mind, she's thinking, okay, is what you're going to test me on going to hurt me? Or should I just go in and, and trust you and have the surgery and take it all out and whatever? So long story short, she didn't have the little biopsy because they were pretty convincing that it was um, a lump, a mass that needed to come out and it was cancerous. And so she goes in um, to one doctor and I, then someone else says, well, don't go to that doctor. Here's a better doctor and because they knew people. She goes to a different doctor Long story short, she ends up having the surgery. They cut out part of her lung, and they do the biopsy, and it turns out that she had pneumonia. 
not cancer. Wow. And now she's really freaking out. Now what do I do? And they come back and said, well, we didn't really say you had cancer, that you had this lump, and it's better that it's out, and maybe that's true. Uh, but she's like, she went through all the emotions of, I'm dying of cancer. I've got to, you know, do all this stuff for my my grown children now. And and I mean, talk about getting talking her off the rails. When really what she needed was to take a step back and realize, okay, you're not going to die tomorrow. On this particular thing, maybe she should have been encouraged to have the test, you know, to see somebody somebody else. But she got, she got scared, and she was driven by others to pursue the fastest thing possible to get her through it. And now she's, you know, now she says, well, I've got these marks from the surgery and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh. So bottom line is she's still smoking. And I'm like, can't be doing that. You know, here, here, like you were just saying, people need to know that there are certain things that we don't do in our life and that will, you know, hopefully keep us in a healthy, in a healthy way. But we don't have to. She likes smoking. She's back to smoking them in the morning. Um, so we can lead them to water. We can't make them drink. Okay. Exactly. Enough. But I think people make better decisions based on getting that information yes. um, overall. Yes. So how do, they, how do they get that? In your opinion, what's the best way for us to get that information? And from who? Which information exactly? On how to, how to care for themselves? Well, yeah. Where do we go? So in your particular case, you were taking the advice of a lawyer and then doctors. But mm-hmm. after the fact, now you know more. Now you know more about uh, pursuing a second opinion, third opinion. People get scared of that. It takes time, right? It does take time. And, and, and I'll step into that a little bit because I think that that's going to help answer your question. Yeah. So when I, when I was left with the fourth surgery and I was having all of these health issues along with the problems with the inward spinal collapse, every doctor that I was going to see was telling me that they would not perform surgery. And part of why they did not want to perform surgery was because it was now a medical malpractice issue. Mm. The other part was that the damage to my spine from what they were seeing was so severe that I was a huge risk for being a paraplegic. Oh dear. And that was also a scare for them. So now now I had the triple combo. It's there's, you know, recognition on the medical side that another doctor did something wrong. Um, but they don't want to admit it. It's very hush hush. And then the factor that if I go in to do this surgery and it doesn't go well, I'm now going to get blamed for what the other doctor did. Mm-hmm. So it puts patients at a massive disadvantage. And there were so many times when I went in to see a doctor where what I heard was his personal opinion and not his professional opinion. And I'm going to explain that uh, a little bit further. We all know our bodies. We know what we're capable of. We know how far we could go. I absolutely knew in the center and the core of my being that I could beat the odds, that I wasn't going to be paralyzed, that I would be able to control my legs and walk again, that I would have a better outcome by having that surgery. And I also looked at it and said, if I don't have this surgery, I'm going to be a paraplegic anyway. So why not 
take the risk and, and have the surgery and, and go for that better outcome. But it was a lot of personal opinion that interfered with that. And I'm going to use an example of one doctor in particular who said to me that on behalf of all doctors everywhere, I needed to stop going for opinions and accept the fact that this is how I was going to be and just go to pain management and, and spend the rest of my life in pain management. And that mm. struck me hard because I said, how can you speak on behalf of every single doctor out there? And it really ruffled his feathers, and he got quite belligerent with me over that. And that really stuck out to me. So then what I, I did was I started contacting top spinal surgeons all around the world, and I used LinkedIn to do this. And I would connect with them, and I would tell them a little bit about my story, and I would ask them, who do you know that could review my case and see whether or not I'm eligible to be fixed? There are so many options out on the market um, for, that's being done around the world, not necessarily here in the United States. Someone out there has got to have something that could help fix my spine and give me a more normal life. And I ended up traveling outside of the United States. I got a doctor who agreed to help me. I went, I flew out of the country. Um, I went to a couple different countries. I spoke with them about the options that they had. Um, they did a full review of my spine, which confirmed things that I suspected um, that I was not properly being told here in the U.S. And then they gave me an option on how I could be fixed and how that would change the course of my life and what that would mean. And I took that information and I came back to the States and I went to major hospitals again. And, you know, I kind of did a little bit of a, <laughs> I took a chance and I, I, I really used the, I went to Europe. This is what they told me. They told me that I could have a surgery there to fix me, and it would cost me 60000 U.S. dollars. And that was not only the surgery, but the full recovery period. And they said that I would be walking again afterwards with very little problems. I said to them, if, if they did not give me a fair review of my case and allow me to have that opportunity of being fixed here in the United States, I was going to go to Europe, and I was going to use that as a basis against the U.S. medical system to say this is a disservice that they're doing to patients. And my ploy worked to my advantage in the sense that I did get uh, professionals to review my case and really be a, and do an in-depth look about how they could repair my spine and give me my normal life back. And I am so very grateful to the surgeons that stepped forward and agreed to do the surgery on my spine um, it was a, an incredibly long journey. I think we spent um, well over a year planning my surgery out before he went in and did the surgery. And he has, uh, he's done a wonderful job on, on repairing my spine and giving me a much more normal life out of that. Something I'm eternally grateful to, but my message to people in this is that it was a matter of my not giving up, not once. And my not allowing anybody who said no to me to be a total no, 
um, that I took every no as a as a direct response to say, all right, well, how do I open another door if this door is closed? How do I climb over this hill? Do we need to dig under it? What do we need to do to get around this obstacle? And my, my clear goal along the line was always um, a surgery that would be successful and give me a better chance than where I stood before. So it's definitely persistence and that will and listening to your gut and you know I go back and I'm thinking it's so unfortunate that you had to go through that to be in the beginning you know why wasn't there the first surgery uh, successful and I know not all surgeries are successful but the goal is to have that first one successful so that you don't have to go through all of that I, I'm, I'm looking now at my notes I'd, I'd written something here where um, you talked about getting a patient summary and this is something I want people to understand. There are things that we can do when we leave a hospital that we must do. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because when my father was in a hospital for four days in neurology ICU, we still, to this day, and this is back in December, do not have a record of what happened. No MRI results, no CAT scan results, no doctor's results because when I went to get the records, they didn't keep them at the hospital. They sent them off to a third party. And the request system uh, this, to get it was just ridiculous. It was so oh, time consuming. And I haven't been persistent enough, but inside of me, I'm like, that bugs the heck out of me. And so when I heard you talk about this patient summary, I wish I had gotten that right off the bat. How do we do that? What do we ask for? Okay, so at the end of every visit, you are supposed to receive a patient summary. And that patient summary gives you all of the information about your visit. And what's happening is a lot of patients walk out of a doctor's office and they don't have those summaries in their hands and then they become much harder to get. Mm -hmm. Another aspect that I um, witness medical doctors doing is they say they need time to put in those notes. So they're, they'll tell you that they'll send it to you at a later point. And, and that may be true that the doctor needs the time to put those notes in, but what happens is you don't actually end up getting that at the end. And I think COVID has helped a little bit in some of those summaries starting to come via email, but that's not across the board among all doctors. Is that is it's why they have the my chart things now? I mean, Cleveland Clinic where my dad goes, they have my chart. We were re reviewing that the other day, but I, I, there's nothing in there from the hospital, and it wasn't Cleveland Clinic that he had the procedures in, but uh, why they basically have my chart and why we need to be looking at that stuff. You do, absolutely. My charts are great. The, the thing that I find about my charts is that they are inconsistent with information. So mm -hmm. you could look at your my chart, and you may not have labs updated from, you know, since 2018, as an example. Like it's not, they're not always up to date. And I don't know why their processing systems are, are not as up-to-date, but the fact that it's not up-to-date presents a problem for you with having relevant information with regard to your, your health care or mm -hmm. knowing exactly what your doctor is putting in those medical reports. And that kind of jumps into my next thing, why this is important to get that medical summary when you are leaving your doctor's office is because if there is any error in your medical summary, 
it is very, very difficult to get those summaries fixed, even though the law states that, that those errors, when found and, and brought to the attention of the medical provider, are supposed to be immediately fixed. That's not the case. And you could be led down this, this rabbit hole where you're fighting and fighting and fighting to get a corrected medical summary because of an error, and you, you don't get it. You ultimately don't get it. And that, that's a problem within, within the medical system as well that has to be fixed. Well, it's important because in, in addition to you know, future medical issues, it goes into if you're trying to get life insurance. You know, you might be disqualified because of something that was written in, and that ha that actually happened to me years and years ago. Even though I'm in great shape, my heart rate's really low, which typically comes with being athletic or you know that kind of stuff. My whole family has it. it it's something that's in there. I got denied the preferred rate initially because of that, and I'm thinking, what the heck? That's ridiculous. I'm in great shape. I had to go to my doctor's office and have them explain what that is in a letter, and that became part of my file, which qualified me for the preferred rate on my life on my life insurance. But I'm thinking here they're trying to disqualify me from something because I'm in great shape, and and that was something that had to be explained. So I, I understand that part, and the summary is really important um, because that medical record is there, and and it will be looked at. In, the, in light of, of parents, I mean, our, my parents, are, like I said, are 86 and 91, I needed access to their records as I am power of attorney and, you know, an advocate for them. Do you have any suggestions on, on what we need to do? And I'm going to bring Dr. Tim McGinnis in for a minute because Tim is, is up on HIPAA rules. What have you found is important to have as a, a caregiver for family members? What do we need to have? You need to keep um, not only all of their medical records, but um, I think you need to keep, I, I use a WinZip file, um, and I keep uh, everything on, or a little external um, USB, mm -hmm. and I keep everything handy this way. If I'm going from one doctor to the next, I have that information um, at my fingertips, all of my CDs, all of my medical reports, um, any pertinent information I keep right on a USB. And I use that when I go to doctors. But a key thing that I use when I go to doctors, which I think a lot of people don't think about, and this is really important if you have an error in your medical file. When I go to a doctor, I bring a note or a paper in which I've written out all of my symptoms, what's going on, why I'm there for that visit, and what I'm potentially looking for out of that. Um, so I'm very clear in this is what's going on, and, um, and this is how long I've been having, you know, these symptoms, you know, what I think it might be or what's going on in my life that it could be from. And, you know, I use that as a basis for talking to the doctor. And I do that because doctors come in, they've seen a huge amount of patients before you. They have 10, 15 minutes with you. Um, sometimes they're scattered. They're not as focused. I find that when I have that, that letter or that note, that it clears things up for them so much more, and it helps them to be more organized. But it also protects me that if there is an error in my medical report, I have that note, 
-hmm. And that note says what I was there for. It also tells me what the doctor is perceiving my symptoms to be or what his attitude is with regard to those symptoms based on what he writes in those notes. Another thing to take is a, a, an updated list of your medications because you might have gotten them, like I know my dad does, you, you get them from different doctors from different pharmacies and you don't really do a clear look at them to see if maybe they're combining in a bad way. You know, and I had a guest, a pharmacist guest, uh, Dr. Melissa Balazon, and and Melissa said that. She said her job is to look at what you're taking and see if there might be some contraindications between one medicine and another that if you've got two different doctors prescribing, they may not know that you're taking those other drugs. So always have an updated list of, of your medications when you walk in the door. Dr. Tim McGinnis, I'm going to bring you in, Tim, because you've got some background with HIPAA and and, uh, maybe a little bit of information about some medical fraud here. Tim, are you there? I am here. How how can we Uh, uh, bring you into this conversation, Tim? So so actually, I was chairman of one of the two standards bodies that developed HIPAA. So I'm sort of co-author of most of the best practices that are actually in use in the United States on HIPAA. Uh, particularly on on areas of privacy and security, but also on uh, medical records and and their transmission. So the the first issue is a very simple one. When you complete a series of treatment or leave the hospital, get from them before you leave a medical record request form. It's very simple. It's usually one page or a couple of pages. You fill it out and you give it to them to get a full copy of your medical record for that process. This is required by law. If they fail to give that to you, you have an automatic right to sue them. And you're not talking about a multi-million dollar lawsuit. You can actually do it through small claims because the amount of the lawsuit damages is proscribed by the federal government, uh, 13 to $30,000. Um, they're going to do it because if they don't, um, it also means that they have to make available their HIPAA transgressions, so to speak. Uh, No practice wants to do that. So I'm not putting down doctors per se, but formally, if you don't have the medical, the full medical records after you complete each procedure, then go and get them. You have a right to have them. Copies of all diagnostics, in the case of uh, imaging now, of course, it's all digital, so you don't have to pay for getting copies of film, etc. So it, it virtually is insignificant. There may be a small fee attached to it, but it's worth paying. Second, instead of putting it on a thumb drive, because thumb drives have a lifespan in terms of years and in terms of number of reads, um, I keep mine on my phone because the odds are your phone is going with you no matter where you are, and if you have an emergency, your phone is an identifiable asset that you can direct people to get that has your medical records on it. Um, Also, when you walk into a new doctor's office, if it's on your phone, you just text him the zip file that you put on your phone. Now, there are some good apps that are out there that will allow you to organize your personal medical database um, both for iPhones and app and, and Androids as well. 
I use one called My Medical App, but there are many. So the reality is, is that you can have substantial portions of your medical records right on your phone, accessible anytime, and you can transmit that to family and friends in the event of, of whatever the circumstance is, so it's well advisable. But never let any doctor tell you your medical records are not readily available because by statute they have to be, and they have to be complete. Any incomplete in your medical record is actionable. You can sue them. You can also file a HIPAA complaint with the Department of Health and, and, and Human Services. So HIPAA is one of those laws that was uh, a surprising success, and it was carried over into the banking world with Graham Leach Bliley. So the result is massive numbers of people came together from all sides of the industry to solve some fundamental problems because prior to the creation of HIPAA in the late 90s, uh, 2000, it was a free-for-all and you didn't have the right to demand your records. So we're all somewhat blessed that it all came about. So that would be my recommendation on that. Now as far as fraud goes, one of the great challenges that exists in medicine, as it does with any profession, and, and uh, our organization, Debbie Scars, is also a professional organization, is that there's vast numbers of amateurs and also people who come into a profession who do not have the credentials or the skill set required. The consumer is the one who has to be discriminating about this. If you're going to a chiropractor for a medical problem, beware. Chiropractors can do great things in a number of areas, but they're not surgeons, they're not, you know, they're not uh, orthopedics, they're not uh, optometrists, they're not medical doctors, they're chiropractors. And they're in the same vein as traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, acupuncture and acupressure can work for some things. But if you have a profound problem, you need a medical doctor first. And you need to be discriminating with your doctor and demanding. And if you can't get satisfaction from a given doctor, then you shop just like if you would be shopping for a used car, I'm sorry to say. Doctors are incredible professionals, but they're used car dealers. And they're only as good as they're good. And they're going to be good doctors and they're going to be bad doctors. I had cancer surgery myself two years ago, as you know, Debbie. Mm -hmm. And I had an extraordinarily good um, urologist to have a kidney removed good news is it removed one of my adrenal glands, so I'm much less cranky. But point being, I lucked out because my first encounter with a doctor on that particular problem uh, was the surgeon that I ended up using. And he turned out to be the best in South Florida for what he does. So purely lucked out. And unfortunately, doctors are not priests. Medicine isn't a process of belief, it's a process of science. First rule of science, test and verify everything. So if you get a diagnosis, do get a second opinion. 
um, don't believe that you can take holistic medicine to solve serious problems. You know, the, the, the problem that so many people face is grasping at straws. They'll accept the first solution that they're given. That's never a wise course. So make sure that, you know, you're talking to a real professional in their field. If you're, you've been arrested, you don't want to talk to a civil attorney. You want to talk to a criminal defense attorney. Make sure that they're certified in the type of service that you're asking of them. They're not just a friend of a friend. Hey, I know an attorney. Hey, I know a doctor. Um, I've had COVID twice, and I made sure that when I was getting treatment, I was talking to a doctor who was a virologist, not a general practitioner. In fact, my general practitioner told me to go home and call him in five days. So there's the medical malpractice case right there. But the reality is every medical patient has a tendency to accept nonsensical answers because they're convenient, because they're not talking to the kind of professional that really is necessary. When you had to go to Europe to get your diag proper diagnosis and treatment plan, you stepped out of the commercial capitalist American health system to one where it's based on hard science. And when you came back in, you know, you were talking to scientists, but they were constrained by their perception of their own limitations. So you gained the benefit of being able to beat them over the head with a baseball bat. You were lucky enough to have that succeed. That, that's, that's really the issue, is so much of malpractice happens because we let the wrong person care for us professionally because we do not make the right choices in who we allow to do what. Always make sure it's the right professional who is at the top of their game, the right hospital, the right clinic, the right doctor, the right practice. Even a good doctor in a bad practice can deliver bad medicine. These are all important things to remember. Thank you so much, Tim. That is, that is excellent information. And, uh, and Tab, how can people get a hold of you? If they're, if they're going through this and, and want someone to uh, just talk to, to get a little direction, how can people contact you? They can connect with me on LinkedIn. They could connect with me on Facebook. Okay. And do you work with an organization, or is this, are you just doing this personally as your mission? How does that? I'm, I'm doing this personally as my mission, and it is building into something more. Okay, good. Because uh, it's important. And online, do you have tips? I mean, in two minutes, what are your top tips for what we should do to be an advocate for ourselves? I think like Tim said, you have to not accept the first solution given to you. Um, and you have to not be afraid to ask your doctors the hard questions. Um, think that when you go into every medical visit, you should be bringing in a piece of paper that summarizes what your symptoms, um, symptoms are, why you're there, uh, how long they've been going on. And then, you know, with every test and procedure, ask those questions. What can you expect to be a potential answer out of it? And treat, treat your care 
like a scientific mission. I think Tim is very correct in that in saying that medicine is science and you need to go through everything for a verification process to find out what that is. And then when you do find out what that is, you need to really take a look at it and decide what it is that you want out of it. If you want something more um, and you want to have a more normal or healthy life, then you have to start asking questions about how your care can be tailored around that. And I think that's an important thing that people stop doing. They, they accept the first solution given to them, and then they don't ask any more questions, and then they end up being miserable, in pain, or you know, a, a lifetime of issues that, that they don't necessarily want. And there will always be people that choose to ignore those things. But I think that more people would rather have that information and, and make the decision about changes they would like to make in order to have something more or better. I think that when you go to a doctor, getting that summary is critical and having that summary be correct um, and not being afraid to immediately contact your doctor if that summary is not correct and say that you need it corrected and, and get that summary available. Um, people are afraid to ask for medical records. Okay. Uh, for some reason, we had a blip there and we lost our guest. But anyway, uh, yes. it was a great discussion. Thank you, Tim, for, for coming in and talking about some of the HIPAA rules and some of the things that we should be um, thinking about. This has been a great show, and I think we should follow on uh, with another one in the future about what we need to do as, as you know, children in our 60s dealing with our parents in their 80s and 90s and what we can do to have the forms available so that we can actually talk on their behalf as their advocates. So thanks, everybody. This has been a great show. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are encouraged and dedicated to encourage you to remove your mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you've been a victim of a scam, a medical scam, a romance scam, a cybercrime of any sort, please visit against scams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based here in Miami, and we support scam victims worldwide. If you can make a small donation to our cause, please visit us. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfoteaming products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, everybody, thank you for being here. Go to my website, TheWomanBehindTheSmile.com for additional information and resources. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and get the replays now. They're really quite fun. And Audible has The Woman Behind the Smile, and it's a great podcast combined with our regular book. So have a great day, everybody, and I look forward to seeing you next week. And have a happy one. Beware, and be aware is all I have to say. Take care. <laughs>